0: Good morning again. It's good to be with you all if you want to open up with me in your copy of scripture. We'll be looking this morning to John chapter 16. We'll be return now to this great and glorious gospel if you remember um, we are in what is often referred to as the upper room discourse of our lord we saw in the first 12 chapters of the gospel of john what's often referred to as the book of signs these seven signs that our lord did testifying to his person as the incarnate son of god and declaring to his people that he was indeed the christ the messiah the one that would come to save his people from their sins. The bread of life, living water, the, the resurrection, and the life. And now, in this second part of John's Gospel, he turns to what's often referred to as the book of glory. The book of exaltation, where we see the the days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these chapters, chapters 13 through really 16 and into 17, it's often referred to as our Lord's upper room discourse where He has brought now the, the 12 disciples and now 11 having, having, having exited Judas from the upper room. He prepares them for His coming departure In both his death on the cross and ultimately his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And he's preparing them for what is to come. He doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want his people to be unaware of what they will face upon his leaving. And if what we looked at at the end of chapter 15 is we see that they will face the persecution and hatred of the world. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so we've seen in the disciples over these last couple chapters, the fear that they have, the, the anxiety, the, the troubleness of their heart, the grief and sorrow that they're facing. And these trials that, that are on the horizon appear to be overcoming them. They appear to be overwhelming them. Not only is Jesus going away, but now they are going to face the persecution and hatred of the unbelieving world. But as we've seen time and time again, our Lord comes to them. He comes to them and he comes to us this morning and he speaks these words of promise and these words of comfort. And what we're going to see today is that Christ prepares his disciples and us for the coming persecution and suffering that we will face for his name. He comes and he prepares us for this persecution so that we might be preserved and kept through it. That even though Christ will depart from the disciples, He will ascend to the Father. That He goes away not to withdraw from the disciples ultimately, but rather so that He might be all the more present with them in and by the promise of the Spirit. And so what we're going to see today is that even though God's people will will face persecution and hatred From the world, Christ has promised the Spirit. Christ has promised the Spirit, the great comforter and helper of Christ's church, who will not only be sent by the Father and the Son, but will work powerfully on behalf of God's people, penetrating the darkness of unbelief, convicting and convincing the unbelieving world, and ultimately advocating for God's people and Christ's church, applying the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has won. And so I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now that I am going to him who sent me, none of you ask me where I am going. But because because I have said these things to you, now sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We pray now that, that by the power of your Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, you would give us strength this morning to see the glory of Christ and the glory of what you have done for us by the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to understand these things, that you would give us strength and that you would help us to see what you have done for us in the gospel, even in the face of suffering and persecution. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning. First, we'll, we'll see in verses 1 through 4, the persecution of the world, the persecution of the world. Secondly, we'll see in verses 5 through 7 the promise of the helper. The promise of the helper. And then, thirdly, in verses 8 through 11, we'll see the powerful work of the Spirit. So, we see first in verses 1 through 4 the persecution of the world. Jesus here prepares his disciples for the coming persecution, and he warns them of the suffering that they will face for his name. And we see that he is telling them this beforehand. He is telling them what is going to happen and telling them what is going to take place. Now, if you remember just one chapter before in John 15, Jesus says something very different. If you look at chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said that he is telling them these things so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. This sounds very different to what Jesus is saying in chapter 16, verse 1. This persecution doesn't sound very joyful. This persecution and hatred that that his people will face doesn't sound very pleasant. In fact, it sounds very unpleasant. So, why does Jesus say this? Is he just trying to be a buzzkill? Is he just trying to? To get the people down? Why does he tell them of these coming adversities? Why does he warn them of the coming suffering and persecution that they are going to face? And the reason is because he does not want his people to be surprised. He does not want his people to be surprised. He does not want them to be ignorant of the coming persecution and hatred that they will face for. His name. It's because of his great love and care for his disciples that he comes and prepares them for this. We see Jesus forewarns his disciples and us of the danger and hostility they will face from the unbelieving world. Not so they will be afraid, not so they will cower in fear nor so they will try to avoid this persecution, but rather so that they might be preserved through it and not fall away. What does Jesus say in verse one? I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is the purpose to protect, to prepare, and to preserve his people in and through these trials. Anytime you've ever had to give somebody tough or difficult news, what you're trying to do is prepare them. You don't want them to be alarmed or startled by the news, and so you prepare them for what is going to happen, what is going to take place. Just like a doctor might prepare someone for a cancer treatment, that this is going to be painful, it's going to be harmful, but it is ultimately for your good. This is the purpose of Christ coming to His people to protect them, to preserve them, and ultimately to preserve and prepare them for what is ahead. And we see in verse 2 that this is even true in the face of religious persecution and even ultimately death. We see that not only will the disciples be put out of the synagogues, but they will even be put to death by those who think They are serving God. Jesus says in verse 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Our Lord here predicts and foretells the coming persecution that His people will face. As we look at church history, we see that all 12 disciples, except the Apostle John, will suffer a martyr's death. They will be killed for their faith in Christ, put to death by those who think they are somehow offering up service to God. This is not only true of the disciples. We see in the early church, many people put to death for their faith. Even at the time of the Reformation, people were being put to death for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by people who thought they were serving God. But we see in verse 3 why these people will do this and the ultimate reason behind this persecution. And we see it is ultimately because they do not know God. They do not know God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They do not know God. They think they know God. They even think that they are serving God and doing His will, but in reality, Jesus says, they know not God, and in fact, they are serving Satan and doing His very will. This, brothers and sisters, is the darkness, the the blindness of unbelief. It's the hardness of fallen man's heart and the hatred of the world. As we read this morning, The unbelieving world hates the light and it loves the darkness. It despises the light and loves that which keeps its evil deeds in the dark. But we see in verse 4, the whole reason Jesus tells them this is so that when their hour comes, the hour of the kingdom of darkness, when it feels as if the gates of hell are coming against Christ's church and against Christ's people, they can remember that Jesus told them that this was going to take place. They can remember the words of our Lord, not only so that their faith might be increased as they see the truthfulness of of Christ's claims, but so their trouble and sorrow might be lessened and diminished because this is not a surprise to them. They're not surprised by what is taking place, but rather so that they might be preserved and refined through these trials that their Lord has predicted. But this begs the question for us this morning. How will God's people be preserved through this? How will Christ's church be kept in the face of such brutal suffering and agonizing persecution. How is this darkness of unbelief going to be overcome? How is the blindness of the world going to be penetrated? And that leads us to our second point this morning. The promise of the helper. The promise of the helper. We see in verses 5-7 through seven that our Lord comes to the disciples and He seeks to comfort and assure them and point them ultimately to the hope that they have in the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. That even though Christ will depart from them bodily in His ascension, He says that it is to their advantage, it is to their benefit that He depart. That Christ goes away, as we said, not to withdraw from them, but that he might be all the more present with them in and by the Spirit, the third person of the triune God. We see in these verses the great care and concern that Christ has for his disciples, as we've seen throughout this upper room discourse He knows what's on their hearts. He knows the sadness that they are facing. He sees the sorrow that is now filling their hearts. And instead of the disciples asking the right questions that would actually give them the comfort that they're looking for, they're only gazing at that which makes them sorrowful. They're not asking the bigger and the deeper questions. They're seeing the hatred and persecution that Jesus is talking about. They're looking at the fact that Jesus will be going to the Father. He will be withdrawing from them, departing from them bodily. And this has caused sorrow to fill their hearts. But we see that Christ comforts and assures His disciples in the promise of the Helper. We read this in verse 7. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We see in verse 7, not only the necessity of Christ going, but the great benefit of His coming departure. Now, a lot of questions come into our head at this moment. How is this possible? How is this possible? How could Jesus leave them now in this hour of crisis? How could He depart from them at this time? How could this possibly be to their advantage? Why is it better that Christ go from them? Why must He depart in order for the Spirit to be sent? Why is His going necessary. And that leads us to two subpoints this morning. First, we're going to look at the necessity of Christ going and the benefit of Christ going. First, we'll look at the necessity of Christ going. Why was it necessary that Christ go? Why did he have to ascend to the Father? And we see first and foremost that it is necessary that Christ go For the full and final accomplishment of salvation. The full and final accomplishment of salvation that everything Jesus did in the incarnation he did for us and for our salvation. Not only in his life and his death and his resurrection, but also in his ascension and his current session at the right hand of the Father. And I think that oftentimes, as we're thinking about what Christ has done for us in His work of salvation, we sort of stop at the cross. <laughs> we think, Jesus said, it is finished, and our minds sort of stop at that moment. Maybe we include the resurrection around Easter time, but we, we sort of stop this work of Christ at the, at the cross or at the resurrection. But we see in this passage that it is absolutely necessary that Christ also ascend to the Father's right hand and sit down upon his heavenly throne. Not only so that he might become our perfect and faithful high priest, as Andrew spoke about last week, but that he might receive and pour out for us the promised Holy Spirit. And that leads us to our second subpoint the benefit of Christ going. We've seen the necessity of Christ going, but what's the benefit? Why is it better that Christ go? That seems very counterintuitive to us. Surely it's better for Christ to be present bodily. But he says that it is better that He go. What is the benefit of His going? We see that it is so that He might send and pour out His Spirit. He says at the end of verse 7, but if I go, I will send him to you. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, sent forth from the Father and the Son. And this is what we see fulfilled for us on the day of Pentecost. If you turn to the the book of Acts, we see this fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The golden oil of the Spirit poured out upon Christ's church. Not Christ replaced by the Spirit, right? as the modalists would say, but Christ present with His church in and by the Spirit. The definitive accomplishment and application of Christ redemptive work. This is why it is better that Christ go. This is why it is necessary that Christ go. But what will the Spirit do when He comes? What will be the particular and definitive work of the Spirit not only for Christ's church, but in and with the unbelieving world? What will the Spirit do when He has poured out on that day of Pentecost and really for the rest of history and that leads us to our third and final point this morning the powerful work of the spirit the powerful work of the spirit we see in verses 8 through 11 that Jesus here describes the great work of the spirit both for Christ's church and against the unbelieving world both for Christ's church and against the unbelieving world. We see that when the Spirit comes, is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit will indeed act on behalf of God's people. Convicting and convincing the world and advocating for Christ's church. Jesus says in verse 8, but when He comes, He will convict the world Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That the Spirit, as one person said, acts as both prosecutor and advocate. Prosecutor and advocate. Prosecuting, in, in a sense, bringing about the conviction of the unbelieving world. Showing the unbelief of the unbelieving world and advocating for protecting and defending Christ's church. This is the great powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is telling His disciples this so that they need not be afraid. They need not be afraid of the persecution of the world, nor do they need to fear His bodily departure from them, but rather they can be assured at the presence of the Spirit, working and acting on behalf of Christ's people. And we see here first how the Spirit is the advocate for Christ's church. The Spirit is the advocate of Christ's church. The Spirit here, if we look back at verse 7, is called in Greek the paraclete, translated as the helper, the com- comforter, or the advocate, protecting and defending the cause of God's people and the truth of the gospel. Now in John Owen's great work on the Holy Spirit, he makes a really helpful distinction here. He says that the Holy Spirit is not our advocate with God. Sometimes I think we think about Christ being our advocate, right? And so we think the Spirit's just doing the same thing. But John Owen is very precise here. He says the Holy Spirit is not our advocate with God. This belongs to Christ alone according to His human nature as our great high priest. But he says the Spirit is the advocate for the church in with and against the world. The Spirit is the advocate for the church in, with, and against the world, justifying Jesus Christ and the gospel against the darkness of the unbelieving world. This is how the Spirit is the advocate for Christ's church. But we see more pointedly, maybe, in our passage how the Spirit is also the convictor and prosecutor of of the unbelieving world, bringing about the world's conviction. Theologian Herman Renovas said it like this, that the Spirit proves the world objectively objectively wrong in its inexcusable unbelief. (laughs) The Spirit proves the world objectively wrong in its inexcusable unbelief. The Spirit proves the world guilty convicting the world and the adversaries of Christ so that they have nothing to reply and nothing to say in response, showing the world to be utterly guilty in a way that they cannot escape. And we see in our passage how the Spirit does this work, how the Spirit does this great powerful work. But what we can say maybe even more precisely is what is the means that the Spirit is going to use to convict the world, to prosecute the world, to bring about its guilt? Well, the answer to that question is the preaching of Christ the preaching of the cross, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. This is the means that the Spirit is going to use to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We see here in verse 8 that Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world of three things. And we'll have 3 subpoints here. The Spirit will convict the world of sin. The Spirit will convict the world of sin. Of righteousness, and the Spirit will convict the world of judgment. We see first the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, or we could say more pointedly, the sin of unbelief. Jesus says in verse 9 concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Spirit not only bore witness in the Old Testament prophets. The Spirit not only testified in the life of Christ that He was indeed the incarnate Son of God, bearing witness by His miraculous signs and miracles that He did testifying to who He was, that He was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, and this leaves the world without excuse. The world cannot say there's not enough evidence, there's not enough reason for me to believe in Christ. The Spirit has provided adequate evidence in both nature, but here most pointedly, in Christ. And so the world is without excuse for their unbelief. But secondly, we see the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. Jesus says, because I go to the Father. That Jesus is saying here that when He rises from the dead, when He is raised on the third day, He is ultimately raised by... As Paul says, the power of the Spirit. And this is the great vindicating work of Christ's perfect righteousness, verifying that He was indeed who He said He was. He was indeed perfectly righteous, and therefore death had no hold over Him. And this shows the world their need for this perfect righteousness in order to be made right with a perfectly holy God. But that leads us to our 3rd subpoint: that the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. Namely, the judgment that is to come. Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ judged the ruler of this world, putting Satan himself and holding, holding him up to open shame. And so how much more does judgment await for all those who put Christ on the cross and are not trusting in Him, who spit and mocked on the perfect Son of God, condemning and judging the only one who lived without sin. And so as we think about what Jesus is saying here, and this great convicting and prosecuting work that the Spirit will do, we can say in a sense that when we jump to the book of Acts, we see sort of a phrase-by-phrase phrase fulfillment of what our Lord predicted, that this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost, convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment in and by the preaching of Christ in the Gospel. We see the Spirit convicting the world. Both Jew and Gentile were gathered together and they are convicted of their sin of unbelief. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus you crucified and killed, they put to death the only perfect Son of God. Instead of believing in Him, they killed Him and put Him to a horrible death. The Spirit convicted the unbelieving world of their need for the righteousness of Christ. He'll go on in the next verse, in verse 24, to say, this same Jesus who you killed, God raised Him up. That death had no hold over Him, vindicating His perfect righteousness and His claims to be indeed the Son of God. And we see thirdly and finally that the Spirit convicted the world of the judgment that was to come. That Because Satan, the one who engineered Christ's judgment and condemnation on the cross, is now himself judged and condemned in the crucifixion of Christ. And so this is the fate of all those who remain in their sin and in their unbelief. And this is the powerful work that the Spirit was doing, not only on the day of Pentecost, but as we see, brothers and sisters, the work that the Spirit is continuing to do to this very day, convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment in the proclamation of the Gospel and in the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. And so we see, in many ways, the two-sided nature of this work of the Spirit. As Sinclair Ferguson said, the Spirit convicts in order to convert. The Spirit convicts in order to convert. Some will hear the word and receive it with gladness and joy. But some will hear that same word and reject it in unbelief. And so that really leads us into our application this morning And the first thing we need to see as we consider and contemplate this passage is we need to see this morning, brothers and sisters, the absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. The absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. Because we see that apart from this convicting and efficacious work of the Holy Spirit, there is no hope of salvation. There are really only two outcomes to this convicting work of the Spirit described in John chapter 16. That when someone hears the Gospel of Christ clearly presented to them, preached and proclaimed faithfully, and the overpowering conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment, there are only two responses. As John Owen says, either they yield unto the truth and embrace it, finding no other ground to stand upon by which to refute the truth, or they fly out into desperate rage and madness, being obstinate in their hatred of the truth and destitute of all reason to oppose it there are only two responses either embrace or enrage either humble submission to the truth or hardened hatred of it they either come to christ as we read this morning being made willing by his grace or they hate christ And become hardened in their sin. As Charles Spurgeon said, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. It's the same message, it's the same proclamation, but that produces the opposite response. And so what we see this morning is the absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit when the gospel is proclaimed. We need the Spirit to regenerate and indwell God's people, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to even understand the things of God, renewing their wills and effectually drawing them to Christ, applying the benefits that Christ has won in His redemption. This is the powerful work of the Spirit of God, and apart from this work, apart from this convicting and efficacious work, there is no hope. And so that's why Jesus tells his disciples, this is why I have to go. This is why it is to your advantage that I depart because of the necessary work of the Spirit of God, shining the light of the gospel into dead and darkened hearts and applying All the benefits that Christ won to our very souls. Charles Spurgeon said it like this in his sermon. I love this title The Superlative Excellence of the Holy Spirit. The Superlative Excellence of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Spurgeon says. It's a little shocking, but very, very helpful. He says, Christ crucified is of no practical value to us without the work of the Spirit. The atonement which Christ wrought can never save a single soul unless the blessed Spirit of God shall apply it to their heart and conscience. Christ is never seen until the Holy Spirit opens the eye. The water from the well of life is never received until the Holy Spirit draws it from the depths. We see that Christ and His work remains inaccessible apart from the working of the Spirit. The Spirit must work in order for those who were dead in their sins to be made alive and to see the great work of God in the gospel. And this really leads us to our second point of application this morning, and that is our utter dependence upon the Spirit of God. Our utter dependence upon the Spirit of God to do the work that only He can do. And I think that this is especially helpful for us as we consider this As a local church, it's a great reminder to us that our success, our effectiveness as a local church is not based upon the response of the people to this message of reconciliation, but rather our utter dependence upon the work of the Spirit. Because what do we see as we look to Scripture and as we look to um, what God's Word tells us? some will hear this gospel proclaimed some will see the genuine love and care god's people have for one another they will witness the unity that we have in the spirit the the peace that we have in christ and they will be drawn to it like flies are drawn to the light they will embrace the truth of the gospel unable to refuse or refute it any longer they will humble themselves being convicted of their sin and see their need for Christ's perfect righteousness and that He is their only hope of being saved from the judgment that is to come. Some will hear the gospel and turn, but others will hear this very same message and be enraged by it. They will become hardened in their unbelief. They will hear the way we speak about the sinfulness of sin and be offended by it. They will hear how we speak about repentance and respond in anger. But I love what John Owen says. He says that this response is no less evidence of the power of the Spirit's conviction than when they embrace the truth. He says this response is no less evidence of the power of the Spirit's conviction that we do not judge our success upon the responses of men. We cannot. We cannot judge our success, our effectiveness as a local church upon the responses of men trying to control the outcome or force God's hand, but we must depend upon the Spirit, trusting Him to do the work alone that He can do. But this is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we implore you, speaking to the unbelieving world, be reconciled to God. God has given us this message of reconciliation. And so now as Christ Church, we can look at the world and say, be reconciled to God, come to faith in Christ and be reconciled to your creator and your redeemer. But the third and final thing that we need to see this morning is we need to see from this passage the promise of our Lord that we will indeed face persecution. We will indeed face persecution, not only as individuals, as believers in Christ, but as his church, whether it's in the form of co-workers at our job, family members that poke fun at us for our faith, the government that even tries to um, suppress us or imprison us for worshiping, or even a professing believer who thinks they are serving God but does not know Him or the gospel and persecutes true believers. We will, as believers in Christ, face persecution. We have it as a promise, as a guarantee. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. It's a promise. You're saying I don't know if I want that promise. But it's a it's a guarantee, it's a promise that we will face persecution for the sake of Christ. But I think that what's so important for us to see this morning and in this passage is not only that Jesus tells us that we will face persecution, preparing us and equipping us for it, but he tells us that it is ultimately not about us, but it is about him. That it is Jesus saying to us, yes, persecution will be directed at you. You will face persecution But it is ultimately not about you, but about me. What does he say in verse 3? They will do these things because they do not know me. Because they do not know Christ. In fact, they hate Christ and they hate the light. And so even though it is us who will face this persecution and hatred of the world, it is not ultimately about us. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson said about this. He says, because when we understand that, when we understand that it's ultimately about Christ and not about us, he says, even though the pain of persecution remains, the poison is drawn out of its sting. Even though the pain of persecution remains, the poison is drawn out of its sting. We are able to say, Lord, this is really about you and not me. It is actually for your sake that we are suffering, not for our own. And so we can actually suffer well because we're not suffering for ourselves. We're suffering for the sake of Christ. We can remember this in the hour of darkness, what Christ said. We can remember these words and be comforted and be assured of his promises. We see in John chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But then he says this, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The sorrow that we face from persecution and from the world, Jesus promises ultimately that it will be turned into joy. Joy. And this is why Peter can say in his epistle in chapter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That suffering as a Christian is indeed difficult. It is not easy. But we don't have to be surprised by it or ashamed of it. Rather, we can rejoice looking at the glory that is to yet be revealed. We can look to the promise of heaven and the promise of being with our God and our Creator. And this is what's so amazing about the words of our Lord in John chapter 16. That even in the face of trials and persecutions, even in the midst of the powers of the kingdom of darkness, the very gates of hell coming against God's people we see the testimony of history is that the church of Christ prevails. The church of Christ prevails, as we sing in that great hymn, against both foe and traitor, against both those who are outside the church and those who are falsely inside of it. The church of Christ prevails, not because of the promises of riches, of pleasure, Or of prosperity. We see in this passage it's actually quite the opposite. But rather, the promise of the Spirit in and with Christ's church even till the end of the age. This is our great hope this morning. So let's thank God for what He has done for us in Christ and in the promise of the Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for What you have done for us in Christ, not only in his perfect life and death and resurrection, but in his ascension and glorious reigning at the right hand of the father, pouring out the promised spirit upon his church, not withdrawing from them, but drawing ever closer to them in and by the spirit. And so we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have given us your Spirit. Even now, we can come to you at any time. You are present with your people by the Spirit. And so we are so thankful this morning, Lord, that what we have is, is so great, and it's to our advantage that Christ went, that he might pour out this great gift of the Spirit. And so we pray this morning that we would not despise this gift, that we would not look down upon it, but rather that we would glory in what you have given us, even in the face of our persecution and the hatred of this world. Help us this morning to to look to heaven, to look to the blessing that we have in Christ, and rejoice that he is coming, he will come, judgment is sure, but those who are in Christ need not fear the judgment, because they've been saved All those who are in the ark of Christ will be preserved through the flood, through the judgment of God's wrath. We have that great hope and promise. And so we pray, Lord, that as the gospel is preached, you will convict the world and you will bring your people to yourself in and by the Spirit. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.